the first reading is Revelation 4 verses 1 to 8 and that's on page 869. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I heard had had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of thunder, flashes of lightning, sorry, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Days and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the second reading is from Isaiah chapter 6, reading from verses 1 to 13. And that's on page 487. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding, Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their eyes dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I sent for, said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remain in the land... It will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps, 
when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Good morning, everyone. Well, as Stephen said earlier, uh, today begins uh, a series from the prophet Isaiah. We're looking, and it's the Christmas season, beginning to lead up to the celebration of Jesus, of course, on Christmas Day and around that time. And, of course, the prophet makes some uh, great statements. Some Stephen has already read out, and, of course, we'll look in detail at the next few weeks about uh, the birth of the Messiah who is to come and what he would accomplish. It's part of Scripture, of course, about which many Christmas carols have been written, um, if you uh, can remember the words rather than just the tunes. Statements that uh, bring forth rejoicing and particularly... Um, now that we, of course, have seen their fulfilment in history, which Isaiah did not have the privilege uh, to see. But if you're listening carefully to that reading that we just had, um, you'll notice that that is not where we start the series today. For to fully appreciate the hope um, that we have the joy of the statements that are to come in chapters 7 and 8 and 11 um, in Isaiah, we need to understand the context out of which they came. What is it that made them even necessary? Why did they have to happen? Isaiah 6 describes Isaiah's encounter with God and the calling to God's people he was given. It's the backdrop which gives meaning and depth to the predictions to come. And it's a disturbing chapter. It's not a fun chapter at all. It's a disturbing chapter, even terrifying at points. But it's vitally important if we are to appreciate the joy and wonder of the birth of Jesus as Isaiah was given to predict. And it's also vitally important, I think, for our context today if we also are truly to appreciate what Christmas means for us. I've simply called this uh, chapter this morning just a slight difference to what you have in your bulletin an uncomfortable calling. Good, it's working. Now, you might like to uh, leave your Bibles open at Isaiah chapter 6. There is an outline in your news sheet if you want to write some notes, but it will also appear on the screen as we go. Now, verse 1 tells us that uh, this calling of Isaiah came in the year King Uzziah died. And that was about 740 BC. So, as Stephen said earlier, uh, Isaiah is writing this 700 years before Christ. Isaiah was a prophet of the southern kingdom of Judah. And just sort of so that you, if you can see that, um, uh, the kingdoms were split in two after David and Solomon. And the yellow, in case you can't read the writing, is the kingdom of Judah and the blue, the northern kingdom of Israel. So Isaiah was a prophet specifically sent to speak to the kingdom of Judah. Others uh, in the Old Testament spoke to the northern kingdom. There were some uh, to both. Now, at this point, Judah had actually enjoyed a very long time of prosperity 
50 years, Isaiah's reign was, I think, 52 years in all. So 50-year reign of what was really prosperity and security under his uh, reign. But the trouble was his reign ended poorly. Right at the end, it took a great dive, a great act of unfaithfulness on his part. 2 Chronicles 26 um, tells us that Uzziah's pride got the better of him. His success, security, etc. His pride got the better of him. And he entered the temple to burn incense on the altar. And this was something very serious. Only the priests could do that. And of course, even though the king was a king, he, in this sense, he was a layman. And he was not able to do that. And so as a result, the Lord afflicted him with leprosy until his death. So when Isaiah says, in the year, this is the year King Uzziah died, we're in a period of uncertainty. What's going to happen? We've had 50 years of security, prosperity, and now we're in the year of Uzziah's death. As one writer says, the clouds were gathering over the nation. Threats from the growing power of Assyria were emerging. And just um, to show you a little bit north of um, Israel and Judah here, here is, uh, you see Assyria in the middle, in the green, arrows pointing south, east, west, north, show the area that was to become the great empire of Assyria. And the clouds are gathering. They're coming from the north. Great leaders are arising in that nation. It's at this point in Judah's history uh, that Isaiah experiences his encounter with the Lord God Almighty. The experience that begins with a vision of the Lord's awesome presence. So we read in verses 1 to 3. I saw the Lord, high, exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The central feature of this vision of Revelation is that of the holiness of of the Lord. And it's manifested here in two ways. First, God's awesome presence is presented to Isaiah in terms of a glorious holiness. Holiness, you see, is more, I suppose, um, than any other attribute of God, his most essential nature and being in the Bible. In different forms, its description of God as holy occurs more than 800 times in the Bible. And its essential meaning, if we carve it up, is really just twofold. First, holiness, God's holiness, refers to his majestic, transcendent otherness. Otherness. That is, otherness from everything that he's made. It's 
Thus, in these verses you see, this is symbolised in, in what you see here. He's high and exalted. And the throne's up there where he's high and exalted. He's seated on the throne above everything. The train of his robe, we're told, fills the temple, the temple floor. Which in many ways is a way of displaying his majesty at the point where God interacts or touches earth. For the temple, of course, in the Old Testament was a symbol of his dwelling, his dwelling place. Above this transcendent God are seraphs. These are creatures that are only mentioned here. In, uh, in the Old Testament. They have six wings. Four of them cover their eyes or their faces and their feet. It seems for even they are not allowed to gaze on the majesty and otherness of God. They simply are his servants. And they continually call to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now this repetition of holy is no idle repetition. We're used to it, of course. We've sung songs about it and that sort of thing. But in the Old Testament, written in the Hebrew language, um, it's a grammatical way of emphasising or of giving emphasis. So when you wanted to emphasise something in Hebrew, you repeated the word. So for example, 2 Kings 15, 25.15 refers literally to bowls of gold, gold and silver. And if you look up the translation, the NIV of that, you'll see it says pure gold and silver because that's what it means. Gold, gold means really gold, pure gold. Similarly, in Genesis 14, it literally reads, now the valley of Siddim was tar pits pits. That's what it says. What it means is it was full of tar pits. You get the idea. However, there is only one place where a word is repeated three times in the whole Bible. It's here. Holy, holy, holy. In other words, the three, this threefold repetition of the seraphs is a supreme superlative way of referring to God's transcendent otherness. He is the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty. We could in fact translate verse 3, it would be perfectly legitimate instead of saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, we could say supremely and utterly holy is the Lord Almighty. His being is totally beyond us and anything in his creation in every way. And yet that same transcendent otherness pervades all that is made. For the seraphs continue, the whole earth is full of his glory. God's being, in other words, is revealed in his work. The abundance and wonders of his creation and the universe as we know it today proceed from his being and reflect the glory of transcendent majesty in all he has made. You know, it's only really in the last couple of centuries that the goal of scientific discovery 
has actually moved from the discovery of God in creation, his being, to virtually the present denial of his existence. That's only relatively new. Before that, science was always seen as the discovery of God's being, God's glory, God's majesty in and through the creation. The second aspect of God's holiness, the first being his transcendent otherness, the second aspect is the otherness of his character. His holiness is not only his otherness from his creation in terms of his being and form, but it's the otherness of his character. A moral purity that sets God above, apart from us, even more, we might say, than his being itself. A moral purity that cannot tolerate any form of evil or sin in its midst. That is why the Bible is clear that flawed human beings cannot see God and survive. It's impossible. The moral perfection of God will destroy anything impure in his presence. It is, of course, this aspect of God's holiness that terrifies Isaiah. See, he believes he's seen God. In reality, he's seen a partial vision of God, as it turns out. But he believes he's seen God. And he knew, for him, the manifestation of the Lord's glorious holiness becomes, in his presence, a terrifying holiness. In verse 4 we read, At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see, everything begins to shake. Smoke fills the temple and the smoke here filling the temple so that he no longer sees what he saw before symbolises the barrier that actually exists between he and God. Why? Because he is a person of unclean lips, as we and all people are. And verse 7 will make clear that uncleanness here is not just talking about ritual uncleanness, the bowls and things like that that we found in the sacrificial system. No, 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 no. It's talking about sin and it's accompanying guilt in God's presence. I suppose Isaiah must have had a look on his face that's something like the look of a face of a young child when his or her mother discovers that child with their hand in the cookie jar. Or the teenager who tries to sneak in after curfew only to find that a parent sitting there turning the light on as they enter. Or the criminal who is caught red-handed in the act and knows his fate is sealed. You see, Isaiah is done for. He is ruined. He is silenced by the understanding of his fate 
now that he has seen the living God. When Martin Luther, the great, that great reformer, uh, was asked to lead his first communion as a young monk, he wasn't converted yet. He was religious, but he hadn't come to know truly the Lord Jesus. And he was a young monk and he was asked to um, lead communion. And he wrote these words. At these words that is being asked to lead communion, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that, for I am dust and ashes and full of sin and I am speaking to the living, eternal and true God. See, our society today, friends, has lost any sense of understanding God like that. Completely lost any sense of that. We make God up ourselves. We make him up to be palatable so that we can handle him, so that we can manipulate him, so that we can use him for our own ends. But the real God is a holy God, so pure and majestic that in his presence a sinful person is like a dead man walking, awaiting utter destruction as only one's fate. This is what Isaiah expects to happen to him. But instead, his experience of the Lord's presence leads secondly to the Lord's gracious provision. In verse 5, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people, etc. Then one of the seraphim threw to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Where did he touch my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, Isaiah underestimates the wonderful grace of God. God didn't come to annihilate him, but to commission him in his service. The coal of fire that the seraph brings is not to bring judgment, which is what one might normally think. Notice the coal is burning. The seraph has to use tongs to pick it up. But here it doesn't signify his ruin and his judgment. But it signifies a sacrificial atonement. The seraph touches his lips. That part of the body that he has signified is unclean. He is specified as his sin and guilt and provides an atonement. This is a fundamental, this is fundamental if he has become the servant of God and proclaim the message for the people that God had given him. A sacrificial atonement is needed because only then can a people of unclean lips 
be reconciled to a holy God. God's gracious provision of atonement has the goal to not simply atone for sin, but to bring about a reconciled relationship. Remember the smoke in verse 4? The smoke that signified separation cut Isaiah off from God's majesty with silence, but now look what happens in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Now, you see, Isaiah hears God's voice. Having been reconciled to him, atoned for and reconciled, God speaks to him personally and Isaiah speaks to God personally. Speaks to God personally, one who is wholly other, both in form and character. How utterly incredible that is. How utterly incredible Isaiah must have felt. Friends, how could a burning coal, let's be real, how could a burning coal from the altar of sacrifice have this effect? How could such a thing bring atonement for human beings, people of unclean lips, you and I, riddled with pride and self-centeredness and rebellion against the God of the universe? Well, of course, that's exactly what the next few chapters of Isaiah are about to tell us. They will tell us that the one God was to send, the one who would be born of a virgin and called Emmanuel, God with us. The child born of King David's line, which Stephen read to us earlier out of chapter 11, promised long ago whose kingdom would never end and who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The one whom Isaiah would be told also much later in chapter 53 would become God's suffering servant and give his life for the sins of his people. The burning coal you see from the altar of sacrifice is simply really part of the whole system of Old Testament sacrifice. It was put in place until the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God would come and bear the judgment of God for us all upon human sin. The Old Testament system was temporary, repetitive, year in, year out, but the sacrifice of the Son of God would be once and for all time. So Hebrews, in the New Testament, book of Hebrews 10.25 was later to say, therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Friends, Isaiah was ruined before he was reconciled. He was ruined before he was reconciled. And it really is no different for us. We too must understand our utter ruin in sin and guilt before the supreme holiness of God if we are to be reconciled and saved through Jesus' death and resurrection. 
We must give up the unbelievable. The unbelievable fantasy and deception of our culture that people are basically good. We have to give it up. Our culture which says, yes, some are bad, the murderers, the rapists, the child molesters, the terrorists. The rest is good. Before a holy God, no one is good. All human beings have fallen short of his glory. Before him, we're all bad. Corrupt, selfish, sinful. We are ruined. But God has made a wonderful provision of his grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to save us from ruin and only he, only he, can save humanity from ruin. Without him, we meet God as a consuming fire. And as Hebrews 10.31 says again, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you're here today and you're still thinking about the Christian faith, I urge you not to pass over a passage like this. God is not, as many seem to regard him today, an optional extra if we need help to get us through life. Think of what it would mean for you today to stand before the Holy God. What could you say? And if you do belong to Christ, as I know most of you do who are here today, we need to hear this too. For it's so easy, friends, to presume upon God's grace. Presumption upon God's grace is one of the great sins that runs right throughout the Bible. It's so easy to presume, to coast along, not being too concerned whether our lives conform to the way he wants us to live or not. Too easy to treat his call to holiness and services, again, as some sort of optional extra and just continue to pursue the goals of our culture. Money, sex and power. Well, Isaiah doesn't make that mistake, does he? He knows he was ruined. And that somehow, by God's marvellous grace, his sin has been atoned for and his relationship with God reconciled. No wonder when God sort of says... Who shall I send? You imagine Isaiah just leaping at him and saying, Here I am. Send me. The question of giving himself wholeheartedly to serve God is a no-brainer for him. And yet his task will not be an easy one, as the last part of the chapter shows us. Because in the rest of the chapter from verses 9 to 13, we see, thirdly, the Lord's disturbing 
program. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, never understanding, ever seeing, never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their hearts dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined without habit and until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone away and the land is utterly forsaken. Isaiah's prophetic ministry, you see, would not see what we might call prosperity and success today. It's disturbingly tragic. Though by the end, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Isaiah is not called to success, as the world might think or call it. He's called to faithfulness, to that which God has given him. And this call has three phases here. First, Isaiah is told that the message he is given is a message that will harden. Be ever seeing, not perceiving. Hearing, not understanding. Make their hearts callous. At first, verses 9 and 10 are dreadful. And at first glance, it may, be, it may look like that God is saying he doesn't want to heal his people. But I think that would be a serious mistake to understand it in that way, and indeed the rest of Isaiah. Because as, we'll get, as we're going to see, that's exactly the opposite of what God is doing. He's actually making a way to send his son and to heal his people forever, for all time. Now I think what is being said here is that Isaiah is to preach in the way we've already seen if we were to read the evidence in the first five chapters up to this point. He's to point out the sin of the people, their idolatry, their evil ways, the way they have lost God and turned against him. But the sad and tragic result is that many hearts are already hard. And Isaiah's preaching will only confirm them in their hardness of heart. In other words, Isaiah's preaching, in the end, will only bring about what God knows lies within. A hard and rebellious heart among his people. Now, it was the same for Jesus, you see. Because Jesus quotes these exact words, verses 9 and 10, when he talks about his parables, when he explains his parables to his disciples and particularly the parable of the sower. You see, parables are not, were not with Jesus, stories that people automatically understood. We often think of them that way, but that's not true. Even the disciples didn't understand them and Jesus had to explain them to them. Now, what parables did was exactly what these words say. They revealed the heart. They revealed what was within. To those who were open to Jesus' teaching, saw him as God's, possibly as God's Messiah, they would continue to bring them to him, to learn more of what was going on. But to those who were against him from the start, they would only harden them further. The scribes and the Pharisees knew many of the parables had spoken against them. 
What was their reaction? They planned to kill him. That's what these words do. It's the same here for Isaiah. His message will harden. And as a result, the message will then lead to a judgment that will devastate. Verse 11, Then I said, For how long? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without habitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ravaged and ruined, until the Lord has sent everyone away and the land is utterly forsaken. These verses, friends, outline the history of what was to happen to Israel and Judah. What was to come? Isaiah asks, how long will that hardness? And God says, until everyone is sent away and the land is utterly forsaken. This hardness would last until the judgment of God finally fell in devastating fashion of what became known and what we know now as the exile. Only some 20 years after Uzziah died, Assyria would sweep over the northern kingdom of Israel and take all its people, cut all its people off and they would never, ever return. Then about 100 years after that, the Assyrians gone by the wayside then and up come the Babylonians who took over Assyria and they were worse. They would rise and they would come and defeat Judah. They would flatten and smash God's temple to pieces and they would cart the majority of God's people off to Babylon. That was something the people of Judah thought was impossible. And yet not all is lost. Right at the end, we just see a glimpse of a ray of hope, don't we? A judgment is devastating and terrible in a way they'd never seen in the history of God's people. But yet, a holy seed will remain nevertheless. Verse 13. And though a tent remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaves stumps... When they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the ground. We know all about forest fires, don't we, in our country. A forest fire leaves nothing in its path. It wreaks utter devastation. And yet after, it has a sort of cleansing effect. With only stumps left, new shoots do grow. So God tells Isaiah that is the way it will be for God's people. A holy seed, most likely here referring to a remnant of God's faithful people, will survive and will remain and will be those through whom those promises of Emmanuel and the shoot of David, etc., out of which those promises will come to fulfilment. You know, sometimes, friend, obeying God's call is hard. It certainly was hard for Isaiah. Imagine having to preach like this, only to see the destruction of the land. Ministry sometimes shows little fruit. But the key is not success, as the world sees it, but faithfulness to God's calling. For everything is moving according to God's plan. 
And that plan for us is much more than a holy seed, a cleansing stump. It is now a new heaven and a new earth for those faithful to Jesus when he comes again. Well, let me conclude. It's Christmas time again, but I tell you, you will hear very little about God in the media. You try and listen for it. You'll hear very little about God in the media. If you believe in God at all, he just seems to be, as I said earlier, some sort of optional extra, conceived of now in a a myriad of forms. No wonder Christmas in our culture has really become Christ-less in its celebration, reduced to Santa presents and some idea of promoting peace and goodwill. If you do not understand humanity's sin, if you don't see that, then you won't see the need for reconciliation. You won't see the need for Jesus' birth. What's it? Just a nice story. What's the point of it? I think more and more, more than ever today, we need a renewed understanding of God's supreme holiness, his majestic otherness, his morally pure character. Why? In order that we might rejoice at the wonder of God's grace in Christ, which began with his birth. We really will not appreciate that if we do not appreciate the first. Only then, friends, I think, will our lives be utterly dedicated to the God who saved us from ruin. Only then we will see the need to carry and announce the gospel to a broken world here, there, wherever. Only then will we be prepared to sacrifice our comfortable lifestyle and all it brings and say to the call of God upon our lives with the enthusiasm of Isaiah, here am I. Send me. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for this passage today, Isaiah's calling. We thank you, first of all, because it really is a picture of who you are and what you've done. You are, and we declare today, the holy God, far above everything that has been made. And yet, Lord, you are the gracious God who desires to bring people back to yourself and and has made the perfect provision in Jesus. Please help us to see the wonder 
the incredible wonder of what you've done for us who belong to Jesus today. And may that sense of wonder be something that continues to motivate us to dedicate everything we do and say to you. And to be willing to do whatever it takes to be your servant in this broken world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.